ladies and gentlemen, it was a cold-blooded, premeditated murder. We find the defendant guilty. Think about all that's happened since 1978. The development of personal computers, the internet, and mobile phones. Can you imagine spending all that time, nearly four decades, here in a prison cell for a crime you didn't commit? Hey guys. Hello. Happy Monday. I just got super confused. I was like, oh, it's Wednesday, but it's Monday for you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Hump day for us. See? I don't Monday know. for What you. day is it? I've been work from home forever. So so has Molly, so I yeah. don't know what day it is. I feel like a caged animal. I'm not going to lie about it. I was not expecting you to say that. <laughs> I do. <sighs> like, even when me and you just went and got the fresh air, like, we just took, like, a tiny walk. Um, yeah. It felt really nice. And we were like, why can't we record outside? Like, I want to record outside. Because it's beautiful. And then we realized, oh, yeah, because all you'd hear is the freaking sound of wind. <laughs> or people screaming. Wow. that was <laughs> <laughs> Tomato, tomato. <laughs> same, same, I guess. <laughs> well, as Molly said last week, um, I took a week off, but this time it's my case. So, yeah. Yeah. And I'm actually really excited to hear, or to hear, wow, I can't talk today. Um, what are words? So, I'm actually excited to tell this case because it's going to be a different feel. And um, we haven't really had anything like this. So, okay. are you ready? I'm ready. All right, let's just jump right in, right? So sometime in the afternoon on September 6, 1976, there were two bodies found, one of which was a 74-year-old named Josephine Davis, and the second was her daughter, who was 57, named Aileen Davis. They were found beaten and stabbed to death in their home in Elizabethtown, North Carolina. Two women in the sanctity of their own home were brutally stabbed to death, perhaps even sexually assaulted. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a case that certainly shocked the conscience of the investigators handling it and, and rocked the community to its core. The two women were 74-year-old Josephine Davis and her 57-year-old daughter Aileen. They lived in this small wood-framed house between Elizabethtown and White Lake Prison Camp. Now, the last time they were seen alive was around 10.30 at night, the night before. Now, a medical examiner estimated the time of death somewhere between 8 a.m. and 10 a.m. However, blood was still wet at 5 o'clock that afternoon when police arrived. Now, both victims, their dresses were pulled over their heads, and they had been beaten and stabbed repeatedly. Blood was found everywhere throughout the house, and it also suggested that the killer dripped blood as he left from room to room. Now, Aileen, she had been raped, and there was bloody palm prints found on either side of her head, which also believed to have been left by her assailant. This is, again, 1976, so what I'm about to say next, keep the time frame in mind. They believed to have found African-American head and pubic hairs on the naked torso of Aileen. Okay. Now, they stated it could not have been from a white male. Now, these hairs were also embedded in blood, which were found on Aileen's forehead. On top of the brutal mess, Josephine's purse was also missing. So they had estimated that this was for a robbery. Now, almost immediately, police suspected a 34-year-old named Joseph Sledge Jr., who less than 24 hours earlier had escaped from a nearby White Lake prison camp, which is a minimal security prison. He was serving a four-year sentence for misdemeanor larceny convictions. After he graduated from high school in 1965, Sledge was drafted into the Army. He drove a supply truck at Fort Bragg. After leaving the Army, Sledge moved around to various cities for work. He eventually returned to Fayetteville, but struggled financially. In 1973, police arrested him for larceny and receiving stolen goods. A judge sentenced him to four years in prison. Now, by the time that Joseph was arrested by Bladen County Sheriff's detectives on the 9th of September, so three days after the murder, he was found 50 miles from Elizabethtown in Dillon, South Carolina. At the time, he also knew that he was considered a suspect in the highly publicized murders, just given the fact of the timing of his escape. 
Now, Joseph denies all claims. He also said that he arrived in Fayetteville, North Carolina, which is 40 miles from where the scene of the crime was, by 3.30 that morning on September 6th. That was also several hours before the two women were killed. So he pretty much had an alibi? Like it was like he was that far away from the crime? Exactly. Yeah, he had known that it couldn't have been him, which obviously if you're guilty, then you know, but he also had a legit area and time of place. But since he was an escaped convict, he knew he wasn't going to be believed. Both victims had been brutally assaulted and beaten, and both of them had their dresses pulled up above their waists. Um, and there was blood on the clothing and blood on their legs. Uh, Aileen, the younger victim, had had indications of sexual assault. On the day of the murder, Joseph Sledge was serving a four-year sentence for misdemeanor larceny at the nearby White Lake Prison Camp. More than a dozen inmates had escaped from the prison that year, and on that very day, Sledge decided to escape too. That's a mistake I, I'm going to have to regret long as I live, man. That's a day going to. Yeah, I jumped that fence right there and came all the way around that fence. Sledge hid until nightfall, stole a car, and then drove to Dillon, South Carolina. Instantly, he became the obvious suspect in the murders. And when authorities caught up with him a few days later, they were already trying to make their case. He was taken to the victim's home in the police car, and the deputies wanted him to get out of the car and, um, and, and walk around. And he knew, um, one, they want to get his footprints near that home. And two, uh, he was afraid they'd shoot him, say he was trying to escape and they'd shoot him. Now, Joseph led the authorities to that same location where he had discarded his own clothing from the prison. He also retraced his route from the prison to Elizabethtown, where he again stole that car with the keys in the ignition. Now, police confiscated the car and also returned him to prison that same day. Sledge cooperated with investigators, hoping to prove his innocence. He showed them his escape route. He showed them where he hid his prison clothes and other clothes he had taken from clotheslines along the way. Now, at the time of the murders, these prison officials at White Lake Prison Camp were having a particularly tough time controlling their inmates. More than a dozen of them had escaped from the prison in 1976 alone. Joseph, of course, picked the one day where this unfortunate event happened. Now, although Joseph was a suspect, he was not originally charged. There was no physical evidence. There was nothing in the home that could link him to the crime. His shoes, which he had not changed from the prison, had no blood spatter, and it did not match the bloody shoe prints found at the scene. The governor of North Carolina at the time offered a $2,500 reward for information about this crime, but again, the crime remained unsolved for more than a year later. Whoa, that's a lot of money too. Especially in the 70s. Now, the murders of Josephine and Aileen were among several that occurred in that same area during that same period. And the news media published articles and aired reports on television constantly just to heighten the sense of fear in the community. By December of 1977, the pressure was constantly building and the reward was doubled to $5,000. In early 1978, this is when Bladen County residents were quoted in the local newspaper saying they were becoming more and more afraid. There were also several other murders in that area that were still unsolved. So they thought there was a serial killer like in the area? I wouldn't say that they thought it was a serial killer because they didn't really have any connections between the cases, but you can tell that the residents were pretty much being controlled by the media, and instead of airing, you know, like happy news or updates, it was always about murder and crime, and it was to kind of scare these residents into their home. It was a very rural community, so... I think it was just to keep control. Investigators didn't have enough evidence to charge Sledge. Public pressure for an arrest reached a boiling point while racism simmered under the surface. In that area of the state, there's tremendous racial tensions then and I think still now. You got a white woman dead. You got a black man's hair on her. What you gonna think? 
And the family was very vocal. The family kept the pressure on. They kept checking in to see what was happening and wanted resolution. So did a community that had seen more than a dozen escapes from White Lake Prison Camp and a half dozen unsolved murders that year. At this time, some residents also thought that the police force were not doing their jobs. There were some residents that formed armed groups to patrol a wide area of the region, including the Cape Fear River, which was where the two women lived. Now, one resident also was quoted saying, and I quote, it's getting to the point where people have to enforce the law themselves just to be safe. Whoa. It was around this time in 1978 where law enforcement agencies decided to interview other inmates who had came in contact with Joseph. Now, in February of 1978, Joseph was indicted for the murders of Josephine and Aileen Davis, which were based solely on statements from two other prison inmates that stated that he admitted committing the crime. Now, originally, Joseph was never charged with rape or robbery, but the pressure for the conviction just kept going because they knew that, you know, the community was turning on the police force. Law enforcement really is at the bottom of the barrel when they go to other criminals and say, can you help us with this? They admit that they went to the prison looking for informants to help them convict Joseph. It wasn't about let's do process and let's investigate and let's look at other options. It was, it was a done deal. Um, black perpetrator, black escapee, case closed. In Joseph's case, you had two uh, women murdered four miles from a prison where someone had just escaped the day before, case closed. Now Joseph officially went to trial in May of 1978. And again, he was never charged with this. He just went straight to trial. This was less than three months after being indicted. This trial was moved to like a different county just because of the pretrial publicity and the amount of outrage in the community. Now the main piece of evidence for the prosecution was, of course, the testimony of the two prison inmates. Their names were Herman Baker and Donnie Sutton. Now, while this case was tried for a second time because it went nowhere in May of 1978, there was a new governor for North Carolina who is a rising star. His name was Mike Easley, and he was chosen as the lead prosecutor. Now, during the second trial, he was fighting tooth and nail for the pieces of evidence, which were the strands of pubic hair, that he physically told the jurors belonged to Joseph Sledge. Now, Mike Easley also had an FBI analyst testifying on his behalf, which he stated that the hair comparison was, in fact, Joseph Sledge's hair. And it was, in fact, recovered from the victim's body. And that was enough to convict him on these two charges. Now, of course, in 1970s, there was really, there's not a comparison to the, you know, evidence and the type of science that we have today. And at the time, hair analysis was considered good science. But now, today's day and age, it's actually junk science. Yeah, it is. It's like this hair is close enough to this hair to say maybe that maybe this person might be that person. It's not like DNA testing. Exactly. Yeah. And, um, you know, the hair analysis for crimes has actually in certain states have been denied as probable, you know, evidence to convict. So we typically don't use it anymore. But of course, in the 70s, it was all they got. Now, Herman Baker, who is one of the paid testimonies, was a fellow inmate of Joseph's after he was arrested for the murder charges. Now, Herman had run into trouble behind bars and was in solitary confinement for having drugs in prison. That raised a lot of questions because how could Joseph admit to killing these two women if Herman was in solitary confinement? Ooh, the plot thickens. Now, of course, these prosecutors were just looking for someone to testify against Joseph, and they gave Herman an enticing option. And I quote, He was going to be doing the state a favor by testifying falsely against Joseph Sledge and making sure that he was put away, and in return for his favor to the state, his charges of having drugs in prison would be dropped. Whoa, I knew it, I knew it. Now, Herman Baker said that he first met Joseph in a pool hall 
in Fayetteville, North Carolina in 1969. So he just made up a whole backstory? Yep. Now, on top of Herman stating that he met Joseph in the pool hall, he also said that they were in a weight room at the Carthage Prison Unit in 1977, creating a lot of different scenarios of where their paths could have crossed. He mentioned that Joseph told him after escaping prison, he came upon the Davis residence and Herman testified that Joseph told him he entered the house and was confronted by Josephine, who demanded to know what he was doing. Now, Herman also stated that he provided details that police said only the killer would know. He also testified that Sledge told him he struck Josephine in the jaw and knocked her down. Now, police never disclosed that information about Josephine having a broken jaw. So, of course, they took that as truth. Herman also stated that he told him that after knocking Josephine to the floor, that's when he began to stab her. Herman also stated that Joseph told him when Aileen came at him from behind, he also stabbed Aileen. He also told the jury that Joseph left the house, grabbed a can of black pepper, and sprinkled it on the back steps of the house so that the, and I quote, she-devil spirits of the two women, both of whom were white, would not follow him. That's a bizarre detail. Was he spiritual? I don't know, but I think it was more of a this is a hate crime and trying to blame it on religion and race and instead just trying to describe the scene, which Joseph could not have known at all. Yeah, like just putting so much detail that you're like, how could you not believe this when we have all these details about what happened? Now, the reason why Herman stated the she-devil spirits was because he mentioned that Joseph told him that the white women were, and I quote, she-devils. That's where he got the lingo from. Now, the second informant, whose name was Donald Sutton, he had 20 years shaved off of his own murder sentence shortly after his testimony stating that Joseph confessed to the murders. 20 years he murdered someone? 20 years. Do you know who years. he murdered? Maybe that can be a different case, but 20 whole years shaved off of his own murder sentence. Donald also testified that while incarcerated in the Columbus County Jail, Joseph also told him that he had killed both women. Donald stated that Joseph admitted killing these women and referred to them as she-devils as well, who were, and I quote, bad for the black man out to get their minds. Donald stated that Joseph also told him and I quote, the black man should rebel over this and should kill literally everyone that really should cross their path. Both Donald and Herman denied having been promised any favorable treatment or that they were going to receive any of the $5,000 reward. It is legal to cut someone a deal for cooperating, but feeding someone information and then paying for their testimony is definitely not legal. Yeah, you're making a, a fake case. Like, you're making a false case yeah. of the situation. False accusation. Absolutely. Herman Baker was given $3,000 in cash, which in 1978 was not small amounts. While Herman received those $3,000... Donald was paid out two grand for his statement as well. Going back to the FBI agent who testified that he examined the pubic hairs, he also stated that those hairs were microscopically alike to pubic hair obtained from Joseph himself. A state crime lab analyst testified that rudimentary testing of the seat of the car that Joseph was driving also tested positive for the presence of his blood. That opinion was based solely on the tests and no confirmatory testing was ever conducted to determine whether or not that specific substance was in fact blood. So they just saw it and said that must be his blood? It was a basic level testing and said there's no DNA, you know, testing available. It looks like blood. It must be Joseph's. Joseph testified in his own defense and denied committing the crime wholeheartedly. Six months prior to these murders, Joseph was on a prison road crew when another inmate, who was also a convicted murderer, 
struck Joseph so hard that his skull was cracked. Now, prison authorities revoked the assailant's honor grade for six months, but when the inmate returned, he was assigned to the same work detail as Joseph. Joseph told the jury that this is the reason why he feared for his life, and even though he had less than a year left on his sentence, he believed he would be safer on the run than inside prison. He said he jumped a fence at the prison on September 5th of 1976 and hid in the woods until nightfall where he began walking towards Elizabethtown. He did not escape prison to commit murder and have more time on his prison sentence. Joseph decided to tell his tale and describe his path from the prison to Dillon where he was arrested and then explained how he cooperated with authorities afterwards. He denied making any admissions to both Herman and Donald. Two other inmates who were also in the same cell block with Joseph, they also testified that Joseph never admitted any involvement in the crime, and he never admitted it to the two other inmates who testified against his behalf. After three days of testimony and argument, the jury then deliberated for two more days before declaring that they're unable to reach a unanimous verdict. This is when the judge declared the first mistrial. Now, this wasn't it for Joseph. In fact, he went on trial for a second time, again in Columbus County, in August of 1978, the same year as his first trial which again is very unheard of. They really just wanted to get him in jail. Rush, absolutely. Now the parts of testimony in the second trial pretty much was the exact same as the first trial. And in fact, on August 31st, this is when the jury finally convicted Joseph of two counts of second degree murder. He was then sentenced to consecutive terms of life in prison. The district attorney didn't want to retry the case, but his young assistant, Mike Easley, did. Easley prosecuted Sledge in a new trial just three months later. It was moved from Bladen to Columbus County. Easley's case relied heavily on the two jailhouse snitches, Sutton and Baker. That was their case. I mean, that, that was terribly important. And this time, their testimony implicating Sledge was much more detailed. The testimony of the snitches was so much altered and changed the second time around to the first time around, you just have to assume there was more discussion about it or elaboration about it or something. You know, if you have one informant, then people might say, well, I'm not sure. But if you have two informants, they're like, well, they couldn't get two people to lie on the stand. It was powerful evidence. So was expert testimony that the Harris found on the victim's body bore microscopic similarities to sledges. Another expert also suggested that there may have been blood on the driver's seat of the car that Sledge stole. But Sledge's attorney says the pivotal moment came when the judge allowed the jury to see pictures of the victims after their bodies had been exhumed for a second autopsy. Right then, that case was lost on that second. The second the, ju the judge said, yeah, that's okay. Let the jury see the pictures of those people down in that coffin like that. In May of 1979, this is when the North Carolina Supreme Court upheld the convictions and sentence. Over the next two decades, Joseph filed more than 25 post-conviction motions. Dude, that, that is really sad. Imagining having to fight every day to get out of prison when you did not deserve to be there. And on top of that, all of these motions were in his own handwriting, and he did not have any assistance of an attorney. Now, I saw some of the written letters for, you know, his motions and everything. Every single one of them started with, dear sir, that just describes how much of a good person Joseph was. Yes, he had a criminal past, but he was being so respectful and just trying to get the attention of the Supreme Court and trying to get the attention of anybody who would take his plea. Now, one of these motions was also based on a sworn statement from another inmate who also claimed that at the time of Joseph's trial, Herman had privately admitted to this specific inmate that his testimony was false and that he had implicated Joseph because the police threatened to charge him 
with the murder unless he cooperated. So they told him that he would be charged for the murder if he did not say someone else charged the murder? Yep. The police, they knew that they had to charge somebody with this murder and they coerced this man, Herman, to say that he heard, you know, the admission of guilt or if you don't do this, if you're not going to cooperate, you're going to get charged for this murder. It definitely changes your opinion on these two, quote, jailhouse snitches because they were also fearing for their own life and worrying about their own situation, their own sentencing. But after all of the efforts, all of Joseph's motions were denied. In 1993, Joseph got wind of the new DNA technology. Now, he had this like renewed hope that he can finally prove that what he's claiming is his truth. So he began writing even more letters to judges, to clerks, other people in the judicial system, just begging them to test the pubic hairs and the other physical evidence left at the crime scene to prove his innocence. Yet again, he had little success. Now, Joseph stated, and I quote, they don't have any intention to solve cases once they've got them convicted, end quote. The evidence that was used to convict Joseph was stored in a small closet in the Columbus Clerk of Court's office. And when I say small, I mean it's like a coat closet, a linen's closet. That's how small their evidence closet is. Now, again, in 2003, Joseph, without a lawyer filed another request for DNA testing of the physical evidence in his case. His handwritten letters became very familiar to the courthouse officials there, but it wasn't until this 2003 area, which is, by the way, 30 years after the murders and a decade after he began asking for DNA testing, that one of those letters convinced a Columbus County judge to grant Joseph's request. Although the court ordered this search for all evidence, there was absolutely no follow-up by any of the agencies involved. That also included the follow-up for DNA testing. Were they like just like throwing his letters away? They just didn't reply to any of them. They just kept denying them. So I don't even think that they read them. I think they just said, well, we have about a million other inmates claiming their innocence. What makes you different? Now, this judge orders this DNA testing kit. That order gets put into a file. It's given to the DA's office. And then nobody does anything afterwards. The judge asked for it and nobody did anything with it? Yep. The judge asked for it and nobody followed up with his case. Is that legal? Absolutely not. His persistence. There's some one kind of persistence where you just, you know, every year or so you hear from somebody, but then there's the persistence of every month and, and the same exact stories and the facts that just did not fit together in, in his case. A decade after the advent of DNA, one of Sledge's letters finally got the attention of Columbus County Judge William Gore. So the judge orders this DNA testing. That order gets put into a file and given to the DA's office and nobody does anything. He's never appointed counsel. The DNA testing is never pursued. In 2004, the North Carolina Center on Actual Innocence, which is a program, they became involved in Joseph's case. Now, with their persistence and three additional court orders, there was some evidence in the case that was finally found, and I quote, and sent to the lab for testing in 2006. With their persistence and three additional court orders, there was some evidence in the case that was finally found and sent to the lab for testing in 2006, still two years after the North Carolina Center on Actual Innocence became involved in his case. This also was after another plea to look for the evidence. It was only then that District Attorney Rex Gore found the box from Joseph's original case in the Columbus County Courthouse Evidence Room, or shall I say, the evidence closet. Although everybody thought this was a huge break in the case, it in fact wasn't because the envelope with the hair from the crime scene that helped seal Joseph's conviction was missing. Dude, that was on purpose. That was on purpose. Absolutely. Because of the missing evidence, Joseph's quest for freedom 
pretty much ended there. Now, Christine Muma, who was officially the lead attorney on behalf of Joseph to help get his innocence sought for, she was quoted saying, we really were out of options in this case. Now, as more years passed, Joseph spent his 60th birthday in prison. Holy crap. He he was in there for his entire life. Yeah, pretty much. His, I mean, at least half of it. Jesus, that that's insane. Just imagine that, people. Being in prison until you're 60 years old and fighting for your innocence throughout the years to only be ignored. To watch your life pass by and watch your your family you know your friends previously to watch them all grow up have families you know get married like knowing that you never had a chance of that based off of two lying testimonies that right there just like it gave me chills watching all the clips and reading up on this case it literally made me cry at least two different times just reading up on all of the details. It's insane and it's inhumane. The limited evidence that had been located underwent numerous testing over the next several years. However, the hair evidence in the case was still not located. It wasn't until August of 2012. So again, just as a little recap, six years after the plea was taken seriously for DNA testing, a clerk in the Columbus County Courthouse who was up on a ladder dusting in the evidence closet found the missing envelope in the Joseph case. What? On the top? On the top of the closet. Hidden. I'm like, I don't even... Like, if that doesn't already scream... I'm the sketchy one because I miscarriage of justice. Yeah. I hid the evidence. I didn't want anybody to find this. Like that says everything. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Now this clerk, she called Christine Muma with the great news that this DNA evidence could now be performed. Because of the age of the case, the evidence simply couldn't be found. And so it is true that people who are involved signed affidavits saying they conduct searches and couldn't find anything. We were running out of options and uh, his file was sitting on the floor next to my desk and I kept looking at it knowing that I needed to write the letter telling him I didn't know what else to do. And then that phone call came came in at that, at that time. They found files that we were told didn't exist. They found fingerprints that we were told didn't exist. They found palm prints that we were told didn't exist. A few months later, still in 2012, that's when the DNA tests were performed on three of the pubic hairs that were found on Aileen's body. This test excluded Joseph as a source. It proved his innocence. In spring of 2013, this is when Herman Baker recanted his testimony. Herman stated that he was promised and received an early parole He also mentioned that he got $3,000 in reward money despite his denials of favorable treatment or payment. Herman also stated that police fed him the details of the crime so his account would be credible. Now, Donald Sutton couldn't recant his testimony because he actually passed away years before 2013. The Center of Actual Innocence learned that the prosecution failed to disclose several initial interviews that law enforcement conducted with Donald during which he denied that Joseph admitted to the crime. So ultimately, Donald changed his account to implicate Joseph, which they used this area in the 2013 recantment. Like Herman, Donald also received an early parole and he was paid $2,000 from the reward fund, and all of this had receipts. (gasps) What? It is just crazy how comfortable the whole entire police force was with fabricating these lies to prosecute Joseph, knowing damn well they had receipts and emails, they had all of the evidence that can also implicate themselves. Yeah, it's crazy to me to think that they didn't just 
destroy the evidence fully. They could have gave him that money so much more under the table. They were confident that they were the ultimate authority yeah. and they could do and whatever they And they would they never want. get caught. In 2013, Joseph took a polygraph examination and his results were peer-reviewed by a second examiner and both examiners reported he showed no deception when he denied committing the crime. He passed with flying colors. And I know that polygraph tests are faulty. Like, I, je- I don't think that they really tell you if someone's lying or not lying. But my biggest thing is they had no actual evidence or even a reason as to why Joseph murdered these two women. Whether he passed a lie detector or not, they had absolutely nothing linking him to the crime in any way, shape, or form. And that is the part that is obvious to me. Exactly. And I know we kind of touched base on this uh, in earlier episodes, but I've actually taken a polygraph test. I know how it works. They give you a list of questions. They don't ask you this one time. They ask you it three different times in different orders. It's never the same thing, different styles, just to test your measurements, your your blood pressure, your sweat levels, your anxiety, your heart rate, like all of that. They do it in ways where they can kind of compare and contrast. So it's not 100%, but it is a good, I guess, measurement of just saying or seeing, you know, how these people are conducting themselves. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I think my personal opinion with polygraph test is whether or not somebody says you are being deceptive is true. It's more so reading somebody's like you said, anxiety levels and yeah. seeing how they're reacting to certain questions. Body language. Body language. And yeah, when we're lying, like sometimes our heart rate does go up. Sometimes we do sweat more. And and I think it's more the physical signs than, oh, on paper it says that you lied. In May of 2013, Christine Muma, who was also Joseph's attorney, but she's also the executive director of the Center on Actual Innocence. She petitioned the North Carolina Innocence Inquiry Commission to investigate Joseph's claim of innocence. Now, during the commission's investigation, all of the remaining hairs found on Aileen's body were subjected to DNA testing again. These results of that specific testing was also consistent with the original hair testing that excluded Joseph as well as the victims. Another re-examination of all physical evidence, the hairs collected from the victim's body, the bloody palm prints on the floor of either side, all of the fingerprints collected at the crime scene, the victim's clothing, and even the linoleum cut from where the victims laid, all excluded Joseph from the scene. The investigators discovered that the prosecution had failed to disclose to the defense that there was an alternate suspect who lived about 500 yards from the victim's home and who had been dropped off near the victim's home in the early morning hours of the day of the murderers. They didn't even question him. Didn't even open that door to the second possible victim, the person of interest. Didn't even go to investigate further. They just thought, escaped convict, African-American, must be him. In a report about the person of interest, police also noted that a shoe print found near this person of interest's home was similar to the bloody shoe print found in Aileen and Josephine's house. It took until 2014 for Herman to start feeling guilty. That's when he decided to take the stand before the North Carolina Innocence Commission to explain why he lied about Joseph all those years ago. Christine Muma asked Herman on the witness stand, and I quote, What did you say about the murder? Herman's response was, What I was told to say. He then further explained that a guard and the warden at the prison camp directed him to testify against Joseph even told him exactly what to say. That's when Herman Baker took the stand before the Innocence Commission to explain why he lied about Sledge all those years ago. What did you say about the murder? 
What I was told to say. <laughs> what you were told to say? Yes. Who told you to say it? One of the guards in the warden at the prison camp. Herman Baker was given $3,000 in cash, which in 1978 was not small box, equivalent to $21,000 today. We actually found the canceled checks. Another motivator? The second informant had 20 years shaved off his own murder sentence shortly after he testified against Sledge. While it's legal to cut someone a deal for cooperating, Sledge's attorney says it is not legal to feed someone information and then pay them for their testimony. The cash transaction is also disturbing to John David, the man now serving as district attorney. I'm not going to Monday morning quarterback what the prosecutors did uh, in the late 70s, but I will tell you that relying on the, the jailhouse snitches is a bad idea. Two convicted criminals who were paid to testify. Those were the star witnesses in August 1978 in a trial that cost Joseph Sledge the next 37 years of his life. They know I didn't do it, but they just put the pressure and say you did what you didn't do. See, they're going to live with that to the die. They live with that. They're going to live with that. They got to live with it. Now, Joseph's response was out of outrage. And I quote, they know I didn't do it. They just put the pressure and say that you did what you didn't do. They're going to live with that until they die. Now, while Joseph and his attorney, Christine Muma, believe strongly that authorities made the conscious decision to frame Joseph for the murders, even after they knew he was innocent, John David, which was the new DA, is a bit skeptical. Of course, he kind of has to be because he's trying to protect his own while not openly admitting that his team, you know, back in the day, fully just discredited everything that Joseph stated. Yeah, DA doesn't want to admit that anything corrupt is going to happen because they are the enforcers. They're supposed to be the justice seekers. They're supposed to be the truth finders. And unfortunately, if somebody in that team is a bad apple he can't just straight out say that because he is trying to protect his own whether that's good or bad I don't know but I understand that it's conflict of interest exactly and you don't want to fully admit that you know your police department was corrupt because then you lose control over that police department they're not going to trust you. They're not going to think that you have their back or their best interest. They're not going to do their job. And that's ultimately another, you know, turn of page to become more corrupt. Prosecutors have an ethical obligation, not just to secure convictions, uh, but to ensure that the people that are convicted are actually guilty. Um, the worst thing that a prosecutor can ever experience is that an innocent person is sent away. And think about why that's so bad. Not only does it erode public confidence within the system, and make closure for the victim's family a sham. But it also subjects the community to the actual killer. On January 23rd, 2015, a three-judge panel of Superior Court judges appointed by the North Carolina Chief Justice declared Joseph Sledge factually innocent, and he was released after spending more than 37 years in prison for his crimes. I'm so happy that they exonerated him like that, but I am just, you cannot take 37 years back. He turned 60 years old, you said, in prison? Yep. That's that's too late. Like, of course, any time to get out is great, but that is a robbery of life. By the time of his release, he was 70 years old. I know that Joseph would have wanted to comment on uh, the fact that he is concerned for the victims and, and their lack of closure in this case and the fact that they are still seeking justice for the, the terrible murders of their family members. Um, I'm not going to go through the details of the case or the history of my involvement in the case, although it does span over um, 10 years. Um, and uh, I won't comment too much about the, the searches for the evidence. I guess I'll I'll, um, I'm going to speak more on Joseph's behalf uh, and about those um, uh, slow wheels of justice that have been referred to. Um, Joseph filed over 22 pro se motions uh, during the years of his incarceration, um, 36, 36 years if you count as his, after his conviction, I uh, would count the time that he was also incarcerated for the murder before he was tried, so closer to 37 years. 
Um, he appealed his case to what was then the highest levels. Um, he was granted a pro se motion for DNA testing in 2003. It's incredibly uncommon for a pro se motion for DNA testing to be granted. So the, that's where the defendant files their own motion for, t for testing. Um, in 2003, the search for the physical evidence in this case was ordered. Uh, that's 11 years ago. Uh, 11 years uh, it took um, uh, of uh, searching for the evidence for it to come forward. Um, there were repeated requests for searches of evidence from both uh, of the clerk's offices, of law enforcement, of uh, uh, individuals who were involved in the investigations of the DA offices. Uh, over years and years, we got affidavits and statements saying nothing existed, and yet when the commission staff was able to gain access, it took them a matter of days to find things that could never be found. Um, I have no doubt in my mind that if the searches had been as adequate 10 years prior, we would have more of the evidence that is currently missing, including the rape kits that were taken at the time of the uh, autopsies, um, including the clothing that was uh, collected that, that Mr. Sledge took law enforcement to that would, would positively confirm that the blood on that clothing, the small drops of blood were, were his blood, was his blood from his escape. Um, I'm grateful that the process is moving forward. Uh, the evidence that was presented over the last three days, uh, in my mind, just confirms what we've been saying for many years, and that is that Joseph Sledge is absolutely innocent of the murders of Josephine Aileen Davis. Um, we look forward to uh, his being declared innocent and his freedom. Joseph has chosen to go through the Innocence Inquiry Commission because he wants that word innocent next to his name. He's waited a long, long, too long of a time for that word to be next to his name and he intends to stay with the Innocence Inquiry Commission process through a three-judge determination. Have any of the hairs that were found on the body of Aileen Davis matched Mr. Sledge? None of them based on what I now know that there is compelling evidence of actual innocence. John David says Mr. Sledge's wrongful conviction and failure to get relief for decades after his conviction was the result of human error. Let me just be the first on behalf of the state of North Carolina to apologize to Mr. Sledge for that. It is further ordered that Joseph Sledge Jr. be immediately released from custody. <laughs> He was then awarded $750,000 in compensation from the state of North Carolina. Now, Bladen County District Attorney John David also apologized to Joseph at the hearing, and he is quoted saying, there's nothing worse for a prosecutor than convicting an actual innocent person. Now, although John David was not the original prosecutor in the case, he said he's going to reopen the investigation. Any sense of closure in their case is actually a sham. The only person who wins when there is a wrongful conviction is the actual perpetrator. David says he has reopened the case and will use the DNA and other physical evidence to find that perpetrator. We're going to work hard uh, to try to develop suspects moving forward, but our challenges are, are definitely steep. I hope the whole family and Josephine and Aileen received the justice they deserve. So does the Davis family. We the family are heartbroken by this decision and we the remaining family members are shocked by the, this change and are compelled to ask the community for help in finding the persons or persons responsible for this heinous crime. Christine Muma also states that Joseph's case is a wake-up call to re-examine our criminal justice system. She's calling for a reform. And I quote, he was discardable. He was a poor black man who had been in prison for something minor, but that didn't matter. He could be discarded to close this case. For the longest time, I wanted to believe that this was just because investigations were done differently then, and it was just a mistake. But in Joseph's case, I absolutely believe they knew he was innocent when they convicted him. It feels like he was a sacrifice. Exactly. Just like she said, he was discardable. It didn't matter because he he was already in prison, so everybody's going to believe he had to have done something to these two women. 
It's two and a half weeks after a three-judge panel declared Joseph Sledge innocent and freed him from prison. This is the house I grew up in and went through elementary school all the way to the, uh, to the, to the seventh grade. Sledge is back in his boyhood home of Savannah, Georgia. My eighth grade school teacher lived right in that house right there. He's taking us on a tour of his old neighborhood. I spent my growing up days going to the swimming pool. I love the water. Sledge says he and his siblings had a good childhood. We stayed on the beach all the time, stayed in the water. Sledge and his sister say their father would take them crabbing and fishing in the tidal creeks near the Savannah River. We had good times, good life. The day he was released from prison, Sledge told his lawyer, Chris Muma, that the first thing he wanted was a bowl of oyster stew. Carry me to this place and, and, and ate some oyster stew. Yeah, it was stew down good too. I enjoyed myself. Yes, sir. Yes, Enjoy. There's homemade yeah, thank you, thank you uh, very much. horseradish in there for you. Oh, yes. Sledge is still enjoying oysters back home in Savannah. I always dreamed of a day like this. I always dreamt of a day. And it finally came true. So now, really and truly, patience, prayer, and perseverance. Yeah. That's the truth. He's also catching up with siblings he hasn't seen in 40 years. He wouldn't let them visit him in prison. He didn't want nobody to come see him like that. Because I beg and beg, could we come see him? He said, no. I don't want y'all to see me like that. Dear sister, I hope everyone is well. I want you all to say a prayer for me to get out of prison. Sledge stayed in touch with his sister and brothers by writing letters. He missed family weddings, births, funerals, and holidays. Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's, don't you think that was nice, wonderful things to celebrate? He wasn't there for none of them for the past 38 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But he will be here this year for everything. And that's a blessing. I'd accumulate so many friends in prison as though that that, that I left my family in prison. <laughs> His sister is glad to have him back, but upset at what happened to her brother. Ah, uh, you got a lot of evil people in the world, but I didn't know it was that evil, you know? How could you take somebody's life away and set him up and give him, he did 38 years, but y'all left him in there to die, you know? Say he would never get out, but God is good. That's right. Come on, you can do it, don't Sledge's brother Edward is glad to have him back too. Then you say I got a lot to learn. They've seen each other nearly every day since his release. <laughs> so, oh man, I'm so happy for him right now. You know, I really stick together every day now. And talk to you, make sure you don't go nowhere now. Stay with me. I said, just stay with me back where you can. Got this phone because it's simpler to use than this one. The day after he got out of prison in January, Sledge bought his first mobile phone, two of them in fact. He bought a flip phone to use until he could figure out his smartphone. I can call here in New York in a matter of seconds. I mean, it took minutes and minutes to get communication. Sometimes you couldn't get a connect. Edward, coming by the house, man. But now he comes through like that, like I'm talking to you. Here. Oh, it's amazing. I go on the internet and buy stuff and, and have it I have it on my doorstep in a couple of days. That's amazing to see what man has done, invented since 40 years later. His first two months out, Sledge used his siblings in public transportation to get around Savannah. But in April, he got his driver's license and bought a car. I just had to re-establish um, re my um, abilities to drive. Next is finding his own place to live. Sledge had been staying with siblings since his release. I think I can manage, yeah. He shows no anger or bitterness over what happened to him. You know, you can't hold yourself in contempt about matters that you have no control over. The state will pay Sledge $750,000 for his nearly four decades in prison. He also plans a lawsuit against the state and local agencies involved in his conviction. But no amount of money can buy back his lost time.
Just give me 40 years back. Although Joseph is now out of prison, he wanted some answers and assertions that the mistakes that cost him decades in prison will be fixed so another person won't find themselves in the same situation as him. In August 2015, Joseph filed a federal civil rights lawsuit seeking damages for his wrongful conviction. Joseph sued the detectives, sheriffs, and clerks whose missteps cost him his whole life. The battles, and I mean battles, of um, trying to get justice for him after the evidence that proved his innocence was available just highlights so much the problems with the post-conviction process. In their minds, the cases are closed, so it doesn't matter. It would have been easier for the system to keep me in prison. I mean, because of the lawsuits, this, that, and all that, and all that. Because of the pending lawsuit, the sheriff declined our request to look inside their evidence room now. But District Attorney John David said there have been recent and significant improvements under the new sheriff, Jim McVicker. He is actually using a very sophisticated barcoding system now. It's all centralized into one location. In Bladen County, they're currently building a brand new jail, and a big aspect of that is going to be a new evidence storage facility. With people's lives literally hanging in the balance, why were local officials not doing a better job keeping track of critical evidence? Center on Actual Innocence Director Chris Muma says it's a problem in evidence rooms across the state. She showed us pictures of buckets collecting rain in the middle of one evidence room and murder weapons lying in the open air, an obvious failure to adequately preserve biological evidence. But she said what Innocence Commission investigators found in Bladen County was shocking. I think the evidence room in Bladen County was exceptionally bad. <laughs> the Bladen County Sheriff's Office and the Columbus County Clerk's Office are now being sued for so poorly managing their evidence rooms, they thought they'd lost the evidence used in Sledge's case. Mike Easley, who was the prosecution of Joseph in his original trial, and the district attorney, Rex Gore, at the time, who for years ignored the judge's order to find and test the DNA evidence. Well, in this case, they're actually immune from prosecution. Why? I personally don't have an answer to that, but my assumption was the statute of limitations on the case since it was in the 70s. I unfortunately don't have a correct answer for that. So that's just my own personal assumption. Now, although Joseph was free, the real killer still has never been caught. In October of 2017, Joseph settled with the Bladen County Sheriff's Office for $4 million. Holy crap, that is a lot of money. How do they even how does the sheriff's department even have that much money to just give us money? It's it's usually just court ordered and then it's kind of like, oh, you're suing the state, and then the state's in debt. So Wow. In March of 2020. He settled claims against the State Bureau of Investigations for an additional $900,000 and the Columbus County Clerk of Court for an additional $2 million. He essentially got over $7 million worth of damages with the combination of all of his settlements. That is the biggest payout I've ever heard in my life. Now, that was in March of 2020. Unfortunately, in December of 2020, Joseph passed away. Are you serious? So he got all of that and then passed away the same year? I personally think, just like he stated, he wanted to do this not for his own personal gain. He wanted to make his mark in the judicial system and say, you know, you did me wrong. Don't ever do this again to anybody else. I'm going to make you pay. Wow. I actually got like weird chilly feelings from hearing that. That's that's crazy, dude. I just, I personally feel like he didn't win all of this money. I mean, granted... You can't put a price on a life, but he was just so humble and you can hear it in his interviews. He didn't care about the money. He cared about this possibly happening to another person. Now, although my case notes are pretty much done, 
I do have a four minute speech of him after he was released from prison. And you can just see how thankful he is that he's finally released and his innocence was proven. I do want to note that both Aileen and Josephine's family still don't think that he's innocent. They still, you know, they thought wholeheartedly it had to have been him. But this is what Joseph had to say after his release. So even after the DNA proved that it was not him, they still full-heartedly believe that it is him? Absolutely. Yeah. Josephine and Aileen's family and relatives, they still think that Joseph was the killer and the rapist of their two loved ones. So it's sad because it's, I don't ever, you're stuck in a situation where you want to have sympathy for the family because their truth is their truth. And if you were that family, that would be your truth. But you also have to look at scientific, like DNA evidence that says like, Hey, guess what? What you're believing is actually really not true. Especially when, you know, the police department, they've done everything in their power to create such evidence and such a story that could be believable. I mean, it was believable. It was the truth at the time. So I could understand why they feel like Joseph is still lying. But at the same time, regardless of how many years passed, you're still going to grieve a little bit and you still want to seek answers for what had happened. So I get it. Like they probably can't live with it being a mystery. Exactly. There's no way that they could live with that being a mystery. And I totally get that. And it's still open. That's just a tough one, but I'm I'm excited to hear this speech. So let me hear, let me hear the speech. Y'all, I'm going to play the speech and we'll see you next week. What does this moment mean to you? Well, I can thank God to be alive and, and thank the Innocent Project and the Innocent Commission for sticking by this case and, and making it really happen. Thank God for that. Did you ever think this day was coming? Oh, yes, I did. Yes, there was no doubt. Mama gave me reassurance that this was going to happen. She said, just be patient. Patience is the virtue. Did your patience ever run thin while no, you were? No, 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 no. I had confidence in my own self. You know, this self-will and the patience and 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 this this patience is the word. Did you walk out of here with any bitterness? No, sir. No, sir. No. No, I can live with myself. I spent all these years in prison. When you conscious of something you didn't do, you can live with yourself. It's between your you and your maker. He know. So that's the reality to the matter. You know. No. So you can live it. What are you most looking forward to now that you're free? I think uh, going home, relaxing, sleeping in a real bed. <laughs> What's going through your mind right now? Probably getting a pool of water and swim for a little while. <laughs> about some food? That's a good idea. <laughs> What's going through your mind right now? Well. Not nothing in particular except being free, you know, and thank God for that. That, that hadn't so been me yet as a, as a, as a free. Well, what about when the, the judges were issuing their order? What were you uh, experiencing in that moment? I mean, you that, that's the moment you've been looking forward to for some, so much time. Oh, oh me, me, me feeling more conscious of what's, uh, what's, what's transpiring, you know, that uh, it, it was... Uh, it wasn't right reasoning. They knew. They knew. I believe they had known way beforehand. You know, because it's been circulating through the papers for all these years, you know, so I knew that they knew. Can you tell us how you found the strength to continue to fight for your freedom after uh, all these years? Maintaining faith. Uh, 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 having confidence in your own self because of, uh, you know, that life is life. Wherever you live it, you got to live it to the fullest. Maintaining obligations and responsibilities in the world. You got to just stay abreast. So if you're going you're gonna to sleep in a real bed, what else are you planning to do? Uh, I don't know. I might go to the Super Bowl. Might do what, honey? No, I just want to go to the Super Bowl. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> so who, who's your who's your football team? What's your football team? Who? What's your football team? Football team. Yeah, like are you a oh, fan of a particular? My favorite team? football team. They ain't in it. <laughs> so so you're seventy, but you look like you're in better shape than anybody standing out here. Prison <laughs> life do that for you, you know. I mean, I mean, you know, it preserves. Show them where you do your push-ups, Joseph. <laughs> On my hands and knees. <laughs> Show them your blisters from your push-ups. Yes, yes. This is about this is about 25 years worth. Does part of you even kind of think that there's someone out here who did this still in the back of your mind? And, and, and do you still? I know what you said in the court, but that's do you a good question because see, the cases happened so long ago, and that I mean the DNA material that they got, you know. And back in '78, it wasn't no DNA fingerprint. But 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 what what it is is that the collection of, of, of DNA technology would probably uh, go into wider research. To uh, I don't know how they'll do it, but they might find the person. Uh, if it don't, then well, he got to answer in the resurrection anyway. So what, 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 either way, he can't win. Thank you very much for Thanks. your time. Thank you.